You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. So in November 2020, we were conducting an incident response engagement with a client and we were seeing that the threat actor was interacting with an internet-facing SolarWinds server. So it became clear that what we were seeing in late November was actually this supernova web shell activity. That's Mike McClellan. He's a director at SecureWorks Counter Threat Unit. The research we're discussing today is titled Supernova Web Shell Deployment Linked to Spiral Threat Group. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. element of the whole solar wind saga in December didn't receive a whole lot of coverage. And furthermore, when we looked into it more closely, we could actually trace this intrusion potentially back as far as 2018, suggesting that whoever was responsible for the supernova web shell activity had been active for a number of years. So based on all those things, we thought it'd be useful to put a blog together, explaining our findings, giving our insight, and then just open up to the community to see if anyone else had any similar observations they were able to share. Well, let's walk through this together. I mean, you're um, calling out an organization that you call uh, the Spiral Threat Group. What can you tell us about them? When we first started, not much. Uh, We could see the activity we were observing in November, and and that was about it. So all we could see at that point was this was a group who had been able to gain access to the SolarWinds server. 
they're deployed a web shell and they're using that access to try and move laterally, dump credentials and those kind of things. When we looked back, we looked at a similar intrusion at the same client that we'd investigated earlier in 2020. And as we dug deeper into some of the behaviors we were seeing, we saw some similarities. So we saw uh, identical commands used to dump credentials to try and dump the LSAS process to uh, steal credentials from that process memory. We saw the same working directory used in both intrusions, so some evidence that possibly it was the same actors using the same working directories on the host had compromised. We saw overlap in the compromised accounts that were being used, so three of the same administrator accounts were being used. And probably most tellingly for us, the threat actor in both cases had, had focused on two servers in particular, uh, one a domain controller and one a server that would give access potentially to sensitive data that, that this client held. So there were lots of sort of tenuous links between the two intrusions, lots of sort of similarities in behavior. Uh, and that, that was really interesting to us. And then I guess the final element that was very interesting to us was at some point during the uh, August intrusion, the threat actor had appeared to download a copy of our host agent and executed it on their own host. And that appeared to have exposed an IP address based in China. And that obviously for us was an interesting data point because while normally command and control infrastructure, you know, you can't, you can't take too much from where it's based in the world. But in this case, it looked like a, the leak of an actual operator IP rather than their, their C2 infrastructure, suggesting that maybe the operators were based in China. So that's our kind of current understanding of the group. Um, we're obviously working to see if we can associate that with any other known Chinese threats that we track. Well, let's dig into some of the details together. Um, let's walk through it. I mean, as you point out in the research that you've published, uh, Back in November 2020, uh, your team was on an incident response engagement, and that's when this all sort of started to come to light. Can we can we go through step by step of how you unrolled what was going on here? Yeah, absolutely. So this client had our endpoint agent installed on their SolarWinds server, and we were seeing encoded PowerShell commands through that host agent telemetry. And for us, that's always a an interesting sign particularly when those commands are running under as a child process of something like a web server, or in this case, the SolarWinds server itself. So we're seeing these encoded PowerShell commands running. We can decode those and see that the actor is actually running a series of reconnaissance commands uh, and then writing this recon data, the outputs of these recon commands to a file on the, on the server, and then later exfiltrating that file and all its content. So we're seeing this recon activity. We also saw a base64 encoded blob being written to the server. And again, when we looked at that, that turned out to be an encoded version of the Supernova web shell. So we're seeing the web shell being written to disk. And we see the threat actor trying to delete uh, server logs and those kind of things to hide their tracks. So we sort of see all this intrusion activity. The thing we couldn't quite figure out was exactly how they gained access to the server, how they were running these commands, and what had allowed them to do this. And it was only later in, in December 2020 when... SolarWinds put out their notification about a previously unknown vulnerability in the SolarWinds Orion API, but it became clear this is how the threat actor had been gaining access to the server, and they'd been leveraging that that at the time zero day to run these commands and deploy the supernova web shell. Hey, you point out in your work here that the, the threat actor mapped uh, network shares on two hosts, as you mentioned, a domain controller and a a server that had uh, some sensitive business information in there. And, and that was an interesting point to you, how targeted they were. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not uncommon in targeted intrusions to see the threat actor really focusing on the assets they're interested in. 
typically they'll have some idea about what they're after and they'll they'll kind of go after the servers that will hold that data for them. But what was interesting in November was they went straight to these two, two hosts and this wasn't necessarily a particularly intuitive traverse from the SolarWinds server. They obviously knew which boxes they were interested in. And as I said earlier, when we began to look back at what happened in the summer of 2020, the intrusion we investigated then, it was clear they were the same hosts they'd been interested back in the, in back in the summer. So they clearly knew what they wanted. They went after it very quickly in November. And that was really in, an interesting data point for us. So the, the, the conclusion here, or the supposition, I suppose, is that um, you know, they had, when they'd gotten in earlier, they'd been able to sort of map out the networks. And so when they came in this time, they knew exactly where they had to go? Exactly, yeah. So it looked like the original access they had dated back from 2018. They were likely evicted in the summer of 2020 when we went and did incident response with the client. And then it looks like they were able to regain access in late November as you say, they knew exactly what they were after and tried to go straight to those hosts. Let's talk about uh, this, this sort of inadvertent um, revealing of themselves that they did um, when they downloaded uh, one of your um, EDR agents. Can you walk us through that? It's it, That's a fascinating little wrinkle here. Yeah, it's quite unusual to see that. Um, I can't think of another example that we've seen where, where this has happened. But essentially, uh, when we deploy our host agent, out for an incident response engagement, the client will install that onto as many machines as possible. And we try and do that as one of the first, first parts of the engagement to gain widespread visibility of the environment. What appeared to happen in this case we, was we saw a host begin to check in from an IP address geolocated to China, to a data center in China. And after extensive consultation with the client, it became clear this wasn't their host. It wasn't an IP address they recognized. It wasn't a host name they recognized. It appeared to be a kind of an anomaly. And the the conclusion we draw based on the data we've got is that potentially the threat actor downloaded the installer for the EDR agent, executed it, and when the agent installs itself, the first thing it'll do is try and check in to make sure it's got network connectivity. So we saw a single check-in, then they uh, stopped checking in, so we assume they killed it. But in that, in that time period, we gained a very brief glimpse potentially into some of their operator infrastructure. Can you take us through what the, the cleanup process is like in, in a case like this? When you discover this type of uh, infiltration, how do you go about uh, cleansing these systems? These targeting intrusions are very different to incidents like ransomware, where you may have a very short kind of time window before something truly awful is going to happen to the customer. So when we, when we work in these sort of targeted espionage intrusions, the most important thing early on in the incident response engagement is to try and understand how extensive the compromise is. So which servers have they got access to? What credentials are they using? Are there any other redundant access points they can use for a persistent access if we shut down the ones that we can see? So we'll spend, try and spend as much time as we think we can to understand the scale of the intrusion. And then it just becomes a case of figuring out, do we need to rebuild systems or can we remove artifacts to um, remove malware from, from those kind of infected hosts? Do we need to do a full domain-wide credential reset to evict them in a coordinated way? What are the steps we need to go through just to make sure that they can't retain their access and they can't come back in afterwards? So we'll spend as much time as we can understanding the scale of the intrusion. Then we'll develop an eviction plan with the client. We'll then do that eviction with them, and then we'll monitor for a period of time after that to identify any attempts to come back in. And in this case, uh, we haven't seen any so far. 
Is there a, a stage in, in this sort of effort where um, you all are being intentionally stealthy? In other words, you know, is it is part of um, your strategy that the the uh, the attackers don't know that you know for a certain amount of time? So you know, to, to give you visibility and what they might be up to. Yeah, there's a period of advantage. You know, after the initial detection, before we start to actually shut down any of the access they've got, we have that small small opportunity window where we know they're there and they don't know that we know. So it's really important in that phase to try and be as, as covert as possible. And we'll do that through means such as using our band communication, so potentially standing up new email accounts for the client to make sure we can communicate outside of their corporate systems, um, finding ways that we can coordinate and discuss the incident response engagement without tipping the adversary off. Because we've seen examples where the threat actor has access to email inboxes or potentially even things like team, Microsoft Teams. We've seen threat actors, you know, in those platforms monitoring what the network defenders are doing. So it's really important we try and hide the response work as best we can from a threat actor. Is there an emotional component to this as well as, as you're working with your clients and, you know, walking them through the remediation of, of trying to... Um, trying to get them back to, you know, feeling like their feet are on the ground? There is a bit of that. That's certainly probably more true with some of the ransomware engagements we do, where it can be a really disruptive and, and fairly shocking time for the organization, especially for ransomware attackers that have been successfully conducted against them. With these kinds of intrusions, it's a slightly different focus because here, for us as intelligence analysts and as researchers, we're, we're trying to make sure the client understands the potential impact and the potential context of the intrusion. So understanding who the threat actor might be and therefore what they're after, because that's really the important bit about intent, as far as I'm concerned, is what they might be going after in the environment. Uh, making sure the customer understands the background. So in this case, because of all the other SolarWinds stuff going on at the same time, we had to try and separate out this activity from the broader supply chain stuff that was being covered extensively in the media. So there is definitely an element of, of education and making sure the client understands what's going on what's important, and that can then help them understand how we should drive the response forward and how we should ultimately go about evicting the threat actor. And how does this fit into the larger SolarWinds event? What, how, how, how directly does this tie into that? Well, the short answer is it doesn't really. And, and this was the initial confusion, I think, because there was initially reporting that suggested that this web shell was linked to the supply chain compromise that's been widely publicized that SolarWinds suffered last year. There was then sort of further clarification in mid-December to suggest actually it probably wasn't linked, and, and certainly our findings support that hypothesis. So what we've got here is we've got a supply chain compromise against SolarWinds that, that happened towards the back end of, well, sorry, last summer, really, the, the sort of bulk of the activity there, uh, which we assessed was likely Russian in origin. And then separately, we've got this activity, which we assessed to be likely Chinese in origin, where rather than a supply chain compromise with SolarWinds, the threat, threat actor had found a zero-day vulnerability in the SolarWinds Orion platform and was using that to compromise internet-facing servers. So much smaller in scope than the SolarWinds supply chain compromise, very targeted from what we've seen, uh, and this is not a group that we've seen anywhere else before other than this one client and certainly one that, that we're trying to map into our broader understanding of the, the Chinese or APT landscape. And so what are the takeaways here in terms of, you know, organizations looking to better protect themselves? What are some of the lessons that they can take away from this particular incident? I think this is one of those cases where 
we will always tell organizations to to patch and prioritize patching based on their sort of business needs. But when you come to these kind of incidents where zero days are leveraged, there's obviously not much you can do sort of proactively to prevent that because you can't patch vulnerability that no one knows about yet. So the importance then becomes one of understanding, you know, if compromise can be achieved by the threat actor, how quickly can you detect that? In this case, our endpoint agent was able to do that. And we always strongly encourage our clients to deploy endpoint controls as broadly as possible. Any, you know, any good EDR agent will give you the sort of visibility you need to spot this stuff early on in the kill chain, because when prevention fails, obviously detection becomes the most important thing. So that's that's one point to make is that layered controls are still important. Perimeter controls are important, but being able to spot things sort of post-compromise activity are, you know, incredibly important nowadays with some of the threats that we see. I guess the second main takeaway is that, as I, as I just sort of mentioned, there are at least two different groups who are targeting SolarWinds software, one through a sort of classic supply chain compromise, and this one through a zero-day vulnerability. So it just shows that sophisticated threat actors continue to try and target third-party software for access, and they will continue to do that. So again, making sure that you are putting the right controls around third-party software you're running, making sure that you understand what normal behavior looks like for that software so you can spot anomalies. It's just really important. I can't kind of emphasize the importance of that. Our thanks to Mike McClellan from SecureWorks for joining us. The research is titled Supernova Web Shell Deployment Linked to Spiral Threat Group. We'll have a link in the show notes. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.